Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, the lectionary uh, reading I want to draw your attention to this evening on this Advent Sunday is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, uh, page 1026 in your Pew Bible. We've reached Advent, the start of the Christian year, and so the cycle of our readings resets for another year. And as you could see, This evening, our gospel reading was of the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, reminding us of our coming King, Jesus Christ. And so we are to be in preparation, both in the reminder of his first coming in flesh at his nativity and of his second coming to judge the earth. It's actually quite interesting if you have your little green a prayer book that you received to turn your pages over to the Sunday next before Easter, and you'll discover that there is no such thing in the prayer book as Palm Sunday. Instead, the gospel reading for that day is the passion, the cross of Christ and his suffering on our behalf. That way, you have the cross before the glory of Easter. Instead, the Palm Sunday reading falls today on Advent Sunday to remind us that not only did Jesus come as king, but he came as judge as he overturned the tables in the exchange of the temple. So we're meant to prepare, you see, for our Lord's coming. And so here in Romans, we find that the Apostle Paul is speaking of a transformation that has begun in the believing Christian. It's something that he started in Romans chapter 12, the transformation of the Christian's mind. And so the rest of his consciousness. It's a portion here we have this evening where Paul works out how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You could even say that these final chapters of Romans from chapter 12 through 16 are an unfolding of how we are empowered, transformed in the gospel in every area of our lives. Here's something to write down. For the Christian... It is not that the devil is in the details. Rather, it is that the Savior is in the details. The Savior is in the details. And so Paul has examined various aspects in this way. In verses 1 through 7 of our chapter, it's how to think about yourself in relation to those put in authority over you in the government. And our text this evening 
he explains another sphere in which we actually live the Christian life. Here, it is how to think about yourself in relation to your neighbor. In your relation to your neighbor. In verse 8, Paul reminds us that we are to pay all of our debts. But to leave one debt, the debt of love, we owe one another. So here we're reminded, the lectionary tells us, how the Christian life begins as the lectionary begins in love. Now, verses 9 to 10, he sets out the principle behind the debt of love in the harmony of the law and love. And he concludes in 11 through 14 in an exhortation as to what should motivate us, the joy that comes in how we are put to put on Christ, to put on Christ in the details of our lives. So let's begin first with the command. We must pay our debts. Now in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has already referred several times to the importance of paying debts. In chapter 1, verse 14, we are in debt to the unbelieving world. Now, what is that debt? Our debt is to share the gospel with it. In chapter 8, verse 12, we are in debt to the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. And in chapter 13, verse 6, we are in debt to the state to pay our taxes promptly honestly and cheerfully to glorify God because he appointed governments to be his servants. It is, in fact, this reference to debt that forms the transition between verse 7 and 8. Owe no one anything, Paul writes, except to love each other. In other words, we're to be conscious in paying our bills and meeting our payments. This is the principle here. We do not, as believing Christians, indebt ourselves in such a way that we are unable to pay those debts. Debt is not a matter of indifference to the Christian. It means before entering into a mortgage or setting up a payment plan, we must be certain we can manage the agreed payments on time. But it can be so very different today, can't it? I mean, this day now with a push of the button on your smartphone or a scan here or there, you can have thousands transferred in an instant. Indeed, I'm old enough to remember the first bank credit cards. That's what we used to call them. Your bank issued them. There was the Bank AmeriCard, which became Visa, and MasterCharge, which became MasterCard. In England, they were called Barclay Card and Access. I remember there was a commercial for Access. Access, it takes the waiting out of wanting. It takes the waiting out of wanting. But a Christian understands that when we want what we can't pay, we are stealing. 
We're being driven by covetousness, that is, by wanting. And so we break the ninth commandment, as we read together this evening. You know, I've read that if a person is $1,000 in debt to a credit card company, they have you for life because most people don't have that extra $1,000 to pay off the debt. And so in this fallen world, with all its devices and desires, we need the simplicity that is in Christ. Owe no one anything. But notice how he goes on to say, except to love each other. We do owe every fellow believer everything. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, it means that you owe me to love me, and I owe you to love you. We have no choice. We are in debt to another believer. Love is the debt we owe and a command we obey. That is why the Apostle Paul says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now that's an important teaching, isn't it? So we might want to consider for a moment, can there be a harmony between love and the law? Now, we need to understand this so we can remember. Well, let's ask ourselves, what does Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 teach us? What's that all about in Romans? Well, what Paul sets out are two things. That our justification is, at the same time, a righteousness imputed to us at one point in time, grounded in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And it's also a righteousness that is being worked in us through time by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is a real ethical change in our character. This is how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the command. The principle, what's underlying this command? It's that harmony of law and love. So the Apostle Paul is saying that not only is love a debt we owe each other, but it's a command that the Lord tells us we must do. He's not saying, oh, well, just love and forget about the law. He's saying that all of these commandments can be boiled down to this one commandment. That's why Paul writes as he does here in chapter 13. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the debt we owe, the command we obey. And that's very countercultural today, isn't it? In the culture, love is an emotion. 
that you're seeking to experience. Doing good. I do because it makes me feel good. So I continue doing good as long as it makes me feel good. And when it doesn't, I'm out of here. But my friends, this is not the teaching of the scriptures. In the scriptures, law and love are not enemies of one another. They are family to each other. They belong together because of a relationship they have in common. Now, what do they have in common? They are both family relations to our Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace. You see, because law is powerless apart from Jesus Christ. It cannot transform us. Love is eyeless apart from the law to which Jesus Christ introduces us. So here Paul is writing of this marvelous harmony of love and law. And you're headed for disaster as a Christian if you place love above the law. Because you have absolutely no idea what to do except to go on your feelings. But rather, we have this harmony of the law of God and the grace of God. The law can tell us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. I wish we understood this because at the heart of every single of us is a legalist and it comes down to all different ways, all different expressions where we try and try and try so hard and we forget the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in forgiveness, his grace because of his love for us. We could drive people to death, literally, by listing all that is demanded of God. But what the law could not do, because of our weakness, God himself did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be condemned and to die. So that in those who trust in his work on their behalf, they're energized and empowered by the spirit in them. They spend their lives in gratitude, in amazement and gratitude for what God has done for them. And filled with that sense of love and gratitude, they willingly go out to live their lives like Jesus. That's why we read in the Old Testament Psalm 119 how the psalmist is so happy about the law. It's because the psalmist sees the way to fulfill the law is by receiving the grace first. Receiving the love first from the Lord of the law. And when he is full of that grace and love of the Lord of the law, then his commandments are a delight. Because they are are the eyes that help him to see what God wants him to do. They no longer drive him into despair, in condemnation, but sweetly remind us of the Lord and his love who saved us. Samuel Bolton, a theologian of the 1600s, said this, The law points us to the gospel. 
so that we can learn how to be saved by Jesus Christ. And Christ points us back to the law to teach us how to live for his pleasure. And we know this because Jesus said this, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Now, being a bit of a, of a, of a clergyman, as I have been, I've always enjoyed trains, particularly steam trains. And I always think of this in terms of an old steam locomotive, okay? Just imagine one, if you can, barreling down the track, the engineers at the throttle, full head of steam in the boiler, the fireman is shoveling coal into the firebox, but the train is useless without the track to hold it, to direct the engine's course on its way. All that energy needs the tracks to make it work. And for the engine to move, it needs the power of that coal-fired boiler. They work together. The law of God, you see, are the train tracks. The Spirit of God that he puts in our hearts are the coal that, that will burn, that we may love God's law and see the wisdom of God's law. And so he goes into the detail here that Alina read to us. Love means you don't commit adultery. Now, why does love mean you don't commit adultery? It's because love means you would never steal another man's wife. That's why. And why does love mean you shall not murder? It's because love gives life. Love doesn't take life. And why does love mean you shall not steal? It's because love wants to bless others, not take from others. And you shall not covet. Why does love mean you shall not covet? It's because love rejoices in what other people have and, we, and that we don't have. We rejoice that it brings blessing to them. And so in this way, you see, love is always the fulfillment of God's law. It's how God thinks. It's how he reminds us what he wants us to do. I'll put it another way. What, what do you find in the Old Testament when God's covenant people are overtaken in sin? You find God's rebuke. You do not know me. And the means that he gives them to know him is his appointed means in the law of God that act as types and shadows that point to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you find the same thing in our Lord's parables. As the characters act upon the perceived knowledge of whom the master is. And when the master is present, he rebukes them saying, depart from me, you never knew me. You see, our rebellion is demanding to know God on our own terms. We neglect what he actually revealed himself through his appointed means of his word. That's why the old catechism speaks of driving us out of ourselves by the preaching of the word, so that we can know God as he has revealed himself.
We want the emotion of love, but we want to do away with the tracks that define it. You see, Paul sets the command that we must pay our debts, but the debt of love, he sets in this vital harmony between love and the law. And now he goes deeper, explaining the motivation. What is that? The power and grace for that living. Motivation, we must put on Christ. Notice how he writes this. Besides this, in other words, you mean, Paul, there's more? Yes, he's saying there's more. You need to know what time it is. Now, when I read that, I always think of my mother getting me up from school. Do you realize what time it is? Well, we all need a voice like that as believers, don't we? Because the world around us is sound asleep spiritually. It doesn't believe that Jesus is to return. They scoffed at it in the apostles' day, and they do so today. And Paul is saying, remember what time it is. The Son of the Gospel is risen. You're living in the day. The light has invaded the darkness of the world. And notice how he says in verse 11 that this is true for every believing Christian as well. Salvation is nearer than when you first believed. See, there's not so long to go because that final salvation is coming nearer and nearer every day of our lives. That's why we should be more zealous in prayer, Paul is saying, because the time is short. It's the day. Wake up. Live a wakeful life. Cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Get up. Get off. Get out of bed. Get those pajamas off. Get dressed. Make sure you're dressed appropriately for the day in armor, he says, because we are at war. Because our Savior is building his church in enemy-occupied territory. Therefore, we need the whole armor of God, as he wrote in Ephesians 6. We walk properly as someone accustomed to the day. Not like those who creep around stealthily, as if the darkness still covered their tracks in immorality and sensuality. The believing Christian lives who sees clearly in the day, because Christ is risen and brought a new day, not only in our lives, but in his plan of redemption. This is the great statement that converted St. Augustine, that great saint of North Africa. This verse, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, do you know what happened to St. Augustine? Well, you can read it in his autobiography, The Confessions. I know Rachel has, and she's given that book to Samantha. So there's no excuse for not knowing what that is. What happened is Augustine tried to make no provision for the flesh, and he kept failing and failing. Why? Because he tried to do it with his own effort. He never put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens to many 
when the gospel first goes to work in their hearts. They gain a deeper awareness of their sinful nature as the gospel comes to them, and they make their mistake. I am determined to do better. They look in the wrong direction. No, it's like Christian, right? Going up that mountain of works. We're faithful, being beaten by Moses and the law. No, no, no. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ first, says Paul. And when your life is filled with the Lord Jesus, when you're wearing the Lord Jesus Christ, and when the Lord Jesus Christ has come to indwell in you, then, then the flesh begins to be suffocated in the strong atmosphere of the presence of Christ, who has come to be your master and Lord. So, put on Christ. And when Augustine did that, his whole life changed. Now, maybe you've never done that. No matter how many times we hear God's words preached, it's still possible to be actually hearing that God is saying to you, you need to do better, you need to do better, you need to do better. My friend, he is not saying that. You know what he's actually saying? First things first. First things first. You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ then you will do better. Now, I hope you haven't got that back to front. I mean, if I had a sweater on inside out and the label was sticking out, would you not say to me, Henry, I think your sweater's inside out? I hope so. Well, we can get the gospel back to front, inside out. Because you... We'll never get Jesus Christ on by doing better. But by putting him on by faith, trusting in him, knowing his presence in your life. Then not only life, but you will get better and better on your way home to glory. The gospel works everywhere and it can work here too in your life as well. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.